It's Friday, March 5th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The investigation by a team of scientists from the WHO into the origins of COVID-19 continues to cause tension between the U.S. and China. Now, an interim report that was set to be released has been scrapped, and another team of scientists is calling for an all-new investigation with more transparency and access. Betsy McKay, senior writer at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more problems for the WHO probe. Next, Google is phasing out third-party cookies and will not introduce other forms of identifiers to track individuals as they browse the internet. Instead, they will implement something called a privacy sandbox, which doesn't track individual people and instead groups them with crowds of similar interests. Mitchell Clark, news writer at The Verge, joins us for Google's embrace of a privacy-first internet. Finally, better numbers and an improved vaccine rollout is making some optimistic for the end of the pandemic, but some scientists are reshaping their views as to when it will all end. We are past the emergency phase of the pandemic, but the rise of COVID variants is very concerning, and this is shaping up to be a virus we live with for a long time. Julie Steenheisen, health and science correspondent at Reuters, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. They've sort of been waiting for that summary report, but they've now said, look, we're not going to publish that. We're just going to publish it all together in the final report in, right. in several weeks. Clearly, it's been difficult to figure out how to boil it down to that summary and what to put in it. Joining us now is Betsy McKay, senior writer at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Betsy. Thanks for having me. The investigation into the origins of COVID-19 seems to be getting more and more complicated a team of scientists from the World Health Organization go out to Wuhan to take a look around and probe the origins, see how the virus might have jumped from animals to humans, see if it was a possible lab leak accident. Well, they concluded their investigation there. There was a lot of issues with the Chinese government. Beijing has to approve a lot of things. But they basically ruled out any type of lab leak accident. They said it was coming from animals. They were focusing on ferret badgers and rabbits that could have been present at the Wuhan market. But now plans for them to write up an interim report has been scrapped. And as I said, there's just tensions between the U.S. and China throughout all of this. And it's just complicating stuff. So, Betsy, what are we seeing right now with this report? It's an international team led by the WHO, but these are all scientists outside of the WHO. And they went to China in January and February to work alongside Chinese scientists to study different possibilities for the origin. So they, there are several hypotheses. The lab is one of them. And they did lots of visits to the market where the outbreak either started or was amplified. They looked at data. They made a lot of other, did a lot of other visits. And when they came back, when they ended, you know, at first they said they believe it has an animal origin. You know, many people, the majority of people seem to agree on that. The question is whether there was a virus in the lab that escaped. They said that was extremely unlikely, but they have changed their tune since then, and they have made it clear that they haven't ruled that out, that that possibility is still on the table. What's happened now is shortly after the team came back, the WHO said that first the team would publish a kind of interim or summary report soon, and then a final report much longer in the coming weeks. We've sort of been waiting for that summary report. But they've now said, look, we're not going to publish that. We're just going to publish it all together in the final report in in several weeks. 
clearly it's been difficult to figure out how to boil it down to that summary and what to put in it. And everybody wants something different. You know, the U.S. wants greater transparency in the investigation. They want more stuff from China handed over, more data and access. Beijing, for their part, they're saying they want other WHO-led missions to other countries, including the U.S., to see if maybe it came from somewhere else, uh, spread to them via frozen food packaging. The interests are all over the place. There's generally rising tension, at least between the U.S. and China, on this issue. You know, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said yesterday and today that, that China hasn't been fully cooperative and transparent, either at the beginning of this crisis and now, that, you know, China is not opening up all of its books, not making data and places and people available to this team. There have been limitations imposed on what they could see and do. And so that's a great concern to the U.S., and probably to other countries, and certainly other scientists. There's a group of scientists that has written a letter urging that a new team be appointed or a new inquiry be conducted that includes an audit of the lab. This other group of scientists, they're not uh, involved with the original investigation that these uh, scientists went on, but that's going to be tough to happen without Beijing signing off on this. There's not going to be another investigation, despite what they want. But they said that the efforts to date don't constitute a thorough, credible, or transparent investigation. So they don't think it's there. And as I mentioned, I don't want to keep bringing up the lab thing, but even they point to some of this stuff. You know, we're not ruling anything out. It just seems like a lot of efforts are being concentrated on that part. And China doesn't want to take the blame for things. So as I mentioned, just complication after complication. The past epidemics, and certainly after the SARS epidemic in 2003, this kind of thing was much more straightforward. It was very, the average person heard nothing about this. I mean, an international group of scientists assembled in Beijing, then traveled to other parts of China, took samples, conducted all sorts of experiments, then went back and did research. They eventually found that the virus had originated in a bat, and it took several years actually to completely confirm that. But this was all left within the realm of scientific research. This has become a geopolitical issue. You know, they're looking, they're not saying, hey, it came directly from the lab as a big accident, but they're saying explore other scenarios. Maybe an employee became infected while they were sampling bats in the wild. That could have possibly happened. Right. Transportation of infected animals, a disposal of lab waste, different scenarios. It's not necessarily that they were working on viruses and that is what got out, but you know, like I said, that question keeps popping up. And you mentioned that the scientists kind of changed their tune after coming back. Did they say any specific reason or just not being given enough of the information they were seeking? I think it has to be said that most scientists who are experts in this area do believe that the virus originated in an animal, in a bat, right. most likely. I mean, that's where these, these viruses, bats are hosts of lots of these viruses. And so then from there, there are several hypotheses as to how it would have gotten to Wuhan, where these viruses haven't generally been found to circulate as much as they do in southern China. So it's just, it's really a question of following every possible lead or trail that you can think of. Betsy McKay, senior writer at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. They are still going to be tracking your interests, but it's something that's happening on your computer instead of in someone else's 
server or at some ad company. Joining us now is Mitchell Clark, news writer at The Verge. Thanks for joining us, Mitchell. Hi, thank you for having me. Google made a, a pretty big announcement this week about how they're tracking you. They say that they won't use any third-party cookies to keep individual track of people. You know, the whole internet is really based on uh, advertising and targeted ads. Everybody does it. Facebook, there's trackers all over in, in your phone, all sorts of things. And this is how they target you with ads. But Google said they're slowly phasing this out and they're not necessarily not going to track you still, but they're going to come up with some other form of doing this. So Mitchell, what are we hearing out of Google? Google has had this plan for about a year now, and it's a two-year plan to phase out third-party tracking cookies from their browser, Google Chrome. And what they want to move to is what they call a more privacy-focused approach, where they are still going to be tracking your interests, but it's something that's happening on your computer instead of in someone else's server or at some ad company. And that will entail basically them tracking you not as an individual, but as part of a group so that they are serving advertisements not specifically directed at you, but people with your general interests. Yeah, I think they're calling it a privacy sandbox. And people have kind of likened it to being in a crowd of people at a concert, let's say. So we know you're all fans of that music because you're there at that concert. We don't know you individually, but we know you were there and we're kind of going to group you into this. And that's how they're going to start targeting ads at you. That's Google's plan, and that will be using a different system than third-party cookies. Again, that privacy sandbox is one of the options that they're looking at. So far, it's not available to the public yet. This is just their future plan for how they plan on doing it. But it's also worth noting that Google is not the only advertiser in town. They're not the only ones that run advertising. So other companies will have to come up with their own solutions that don't involve third-party cookies because they will be blocked in Chrome, and they're already blocked in Firefox and Safari and some other browsers. Google is doing this at a time right now when there's a lot of scrutiny on how people are tracked and targeted for advertisements, but they're doing that also. They mentioned in the blog post that they put out about it, you know, they're doing it for consumers too. They're listening to people saying that they don't like this type of action. It is to get ahead of regulations that haven't been made yet, especially in the U.S., but it is also just a bad customer experience when you're on a website and then the next website you go to is advertising products that you just looked at. No one likes that. Right. First of all, it doesn't make them feel safe. And then it doesn't give you warm feelings about the product because, you know, it feels like it's following me around the Internet now. It always feels like you can be talking to somebody not on the Internet. And then once you hit the web, you're getting targeted for something you were just talking about. I mean, that's how deep these trackers go and why you think your devices might be listening to you because the tracking is that good. Yeah, I was reading an article just the other day, and they said, well, just by reading this article, now you're going to see ads for the thing that we were talking about. I don't know if any companies have actually implemented too much listening to you, but it does definitely feel that way sometimes. You know, one of the other interesting parts of it, too, is Google said third-party trackers we're going to get rid of, but first-party tracking they're still going to do. So if you're using Google products, things like YouTube, they'll still track you there. So what is the ecosystem going to look like after this? Google does say that while they want to take the more privacy-centered approach, that there will be other advertisers who don't. And they do have other ways to track you other than third-party cookies. There's fingerprinting, which is finding unique details about your device and using that to 
track you that way. And then there's good old fashioned asking for your email and you giving it to them and tracking that email along other sites that are in a group. So let's say some sites have gathered together to share information and they get that information when you put your email into them, which is in some ways a more private approach because you are knowingly giving them uh, your email, but you don't necessarily know that they're all working together unless you're actually looking into that. Mitchell Clark, news writer at The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. The effect of vaccination was diminished by multiple fold, but it wasn't obliterated because of the cushion of a high level of antibody. Joining us now is Julie Steenheisen, health and science correspondent at Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Julie. Thanks for having me. We've been hearing a lot of good news, bad news when it comes to coronavirus lately. It seems to be the common theme. I mean, we're getting vaccines ramped up. We're seeing case numbers drop down. We're seeing hospitalizations go down in a lot of places. We're seeing places like Texas and Mississippi and other states opening back up 100%, no more mask mandates, things like that. And on the flip side of it, we keep hearing about these troubling variants, uh, the ones from South Africa, from UK, Brazil. There's a few rolling around, even some that originated here in the United States now. And what it's doing is it's kind of reshaping scientists' views on COVID-19. They're not thinking the picture is so rosy as it seems to have been getting. So, Julie, tell us a little bit about your conversations with uh, some of these experts. I think that uh, there has been this real transformation, and part of it had to do with the really fantastic vaccine results that we got in November. Pfizer's vaccine was 95% effective. Moderna's 94% effective. This is a brand new virus, and nobody expected that we would be that successful at developing a vaccine. And so that kind of raised some hopes among scientists that, you know, with these highly effective vaccines, we could really make a dent in this virus. And, you know, we, we might be seeing the end of the pandemic, maybe even this summer. And part of that was because while all viruses mutate, the coronavirus really hadn't mutated much for most of the year. And so I think there was this expectation that, you know, it just might stand still long enough for everybody to get vaccinated, and then we're just through this. And unfortunately, that did not happen. And uh, around Christmas time, scientists learned about a variant of the coronavirus that originated in South Africa. And that's the variant, I think, that is, uh, you know, and parts of, you know, certain mutations within that variant are really ones that are most concerning. And the reason is because some studies have shown that the virus can actually evade or escape natural immunity. So if you had been infected with the original virus and then you were reinfected with the South African variant, you would still get sick. There was no protection. And that was pretty stunning. Yeah. And this leads a lot of experts. I mean, it it really already seems like it's going that route is that this virus will be endemic, meaning it's going to live with us. We're going to have to live with this for some time, something like the flu. And experts are cautioning that, yes, as these vaccines roll out and we can kind of get to that herd immunity, hopefully COVID-19 will be with us for a while. And it could be worse than the flu in some cases. You know, we're still going to see hospitalizations and death coming out of this thing. And that's sort of based on this calculation, right? I mean, the flu normally causes between five and, you know, some estimates up to 50,000 deaths a year in a bad season. So I had, I had this modeler, Chris Murray, 
just sort of do a, a, he called it a back of the envelope calculation, but basically said, okay, so if there's no natural immunity and if the companies are are able to achieve 65% effective vaccine, even with the variants, you get at least half of the population vaccinated. What you're going to see is that the coronavirus will still be about four times worse than a regular flu season. That's pretty bad. A lot of people have pointed that, you know, we're, we're might be getting to, you know, past this emergency phase of the pandemic. The hospitals aren't as full. The ICUs aren't as full. And the death counts aren't the same as they were in the beginning. You know, we're starting to get a better handle on this. So, I mean, what is the concern now? It's just that it will be with us for some long, for a long period of time. Is that what it is? Yes, we saw some really favorable trends. But you're starting to see the CDC say, look, we expect these variants to become widespread. Now, the CDC has already projected that the UK variant is going to become the dominant strain in the United States starting in March. So they're looking at the data and saying, okay, yes, we saw a dramatic drop, but we've plateaued. Cases aren't falling anymore. And in some cases, just picking up a little bit. And the concern is already that the UK variant is more transmissible. It hasn't been shown to cause more severe disease and they haven't seen the escape from prior immunity. But we also know that the South African variant is already here in the United States and it is also highly transmissible. So the concern is just as we're starting to feel better, right? You know, that we're seeing these numbers go down and we're all sort of taking a deep breath and saying, you know, sighing and saying, oh, that was horrible. These variants are getting ready to become the dominant strains in the United States. And that's worrisome because yeah. what that means is just as we've let our guards down, we may become infected with these more transmissible variants that also have the possibility of escaping the protection from vaccines. And now comes the really hard part, the balance, right? You said we're getting better. I mentioned, you know, Texas, Mississippi, other states are opening back up completely. No more mask mandates. And we need some of that. You know, the country is hurting in a lot of different ways. So we need to start opening back up. But public health is also key as well. So this is where the really difficult part starts to happen is that balance. I mean, we've been trying to keep that balance all along, but now it's even more critical as the vaccines roll out. And this is the next big challenge. Well, and I think part of it is it's just if we can hold on just a little bit longer, like now it's apparently there will be enough vaccines for everybody until the end of through the end of May. So some of the other science out there is that even though, you know, these variants are more transmissible, they do protect very well against hospitalization and against death. And so the hope is that everybody can just hang on a little longer, keep your masks on, do what you've been doing as these variants continue to spread and get a vaccine. And, you know, that could really help at least keep you out of the hospital. I mean, we don't know yet what the full impact will be. And we also know that the drug companies are making new versions of their vaccines that will specifically address the South African variant. So there may be a booster shot in the fall or whenever it's ready that would prevent a lot of the, you know, horrible projections. But it's just that we're not out of the woods yet. Julie Steenheisen, health and science correspondent at Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright. 
and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.